On this episode of The Culture Laser, we've got a vintage interview with the author Mandy Haggith talking about her book Paper Trails, a fascinating uh, exploration of where our paper comes from and where it goes. But first, we've got a brand new interview uh, with Ian Stephen, who's a fantastic poet, uh, novelist, and storyteller. He lives up in Stornoway in the Outer Hebrides, uh, where I got a chance to catch up with him. He gave me the most warm welcome to the island, and uh, we sat down and we had a little discussion about one of his unfinished projects. Here he is, Mr. Ian Stephen. So we've been asking people, as you know, uh, a little bit about unfinished projects that they've been involved in, maybe something that they've started and was too ambitious or too ridiculous or too expensive to complete. Ian, you've got, you've got one that you've been working on for a while, haven't oh, you? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Haven't we all got one of these? I think my one would be um, the St. Kilda libretto. Many years ago, uh, the phone went, <laughs> can a phone go out of the blue? If it can, I got a phone call out of the blue. A German-based composer called David Graham asked me if I was interested in writing a libretto based on the community of St Kilda. It turned out that he had joint written the film music for a Bill Douglas film called Comrades, which is a lot of people is not their favourite Bill Douglas film, but I was mesmerised by Comrades. And I, I'm fascinated by Bill Douglas's work. So once he said that, I wanted to work with this guy, and we did. The only thing is, it all became a bit huge. I met a man of Polish origins, Lev Bogdan, who ran a theatre in France with productions directed by his Russian wife. And Lev's concept, I thought, was brilliant. It was to turn arse about face, the idea of what's the periphery. Everything starts from St Kilda and as a homage to the culture of that archipelago, an action would begin and be beamed live at the same time to different venues throughout continental Europe and they would dance to the tune they got from St Kilda. I like the concept, but the way Lev expressed it, it was very difficult to communicate sell and there had to be a bit more practical substance something for people to get their teeth into so David and I were commissioned to basically develop the idea into some working proposals and we did I had a conversation with Gavin Wallace at the Scottish Arts Council then Gavin said this is not just literature we need to gather all the heads of all the departments. So I think it's what they call a big meeting. Now, I showed up for this meeting, travelling down from Lewis, and David was there looking every inch a composer with his bow tie and everything, but a bit flustered. What's the problem? Lev couldn't get on the plane. What do you mean he couldn't get on the plane? His wife's Russian, I know, but she didn't have a visa. And she couldn't get on the plane and it was a Ryanair airport in the middle of nowhere. She doesn't drive. He couldn't leave her. What are we going to do? I said, we're going to present a project to the Scottish Arts Council. And we did. And we, we, we really had a very clear idea by this stage. And we got on, we got on great. And we all really loved Lev's proposal. And I think her enthusiasm must have done something because... I think it was Amanda Cat or somebody at the meeting said, right, the biggest we can give you to get things started is 175,000. Will that, will that get things going? I'm going, yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, 
So this, this was the beginning of what ended up being a very large-scale European event. Um, I was invited, basically, not only to be the librettist, but to find the right partners in Scotland. And I found partners in Scotland, <laughs> but I became convinced that they were the wrong partners. And it was my call, and I'd made the decision, the project, which was already complex and large scale, became more and more, not only complex, but I would say convoluted to the point where I felt the whole artistic integrity or the brilliant idea Lev had was just not going to happen. So I had to make the difficult decision after investing about two years working on this and getting on great with David and producing some lyrics, which I'm still pretty happy with, to say, this is the time to leave. Because if I do this cleanly, the way is clear for another writer. And the person who was running the, the Scottish side of things wanted a Gaelic-speaking writer anyway. For me, that wasn't a problem because I'd just done a play called Seven Hunters based on the Flannan Isles story, working with uh, the wonderful actor Simon Mackenzie. And I would talk to him in English and he'd talk back to me in Gaelic and we devised the Gaelic version that way and it worked great. And he was on board and keen to do it again. But somehow this guy had this idea that it had to be a Gaelic-speaking writer. So for all these reasons, the pressure was just impossible. And I said, I'm out of this one. And I'll do it now cleanly, but it's complete severance. I take the rights of what I've developed. So it's a clean slate for the new writer who was a Gaelic speaker. But as I found out later, guess what? wrote everything in English and got it translated into Gaelic by someone else. Uh, this project happened. When was this? Um, 2007 was the production. It all happened and it happened in, in several venues throughout Europe. But I kept getting phone calls from unhappy people and I had to say, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I also am not happy with the way the project has gone but I'm not involved anymore. So you'll just have to deal with that directly. But it kept happening again and again. And I think I learned a lot about the scale of a project has to be appropriate. And a big scale project may not be the best way of doing it. Now, a year after that, David phoned me and he said, do you want to do what we did? I said, yeah because I, I loved the music he did. And we had very simple things with piano and voice. He says, do you want to do that in Germany? Yeah. So he got funding to have very simple productions in Bonn and Cologne, in very good venues, with a mixture of professional musicians and um, a enthusiastic amateur choir and in one case, dancers from a school working with a professional. And I have to say, there wasn't a bit of stress in the whole deal. It got great reviews. And David and I <laughs> did the classic. Uh, he produced a bottle of very nice malt whiskey, took the top off and said, I think I've learned this in Lewis, we shan't be requiring this for the rest of the evening, shall we? 
and sank that bottle slowly over a whole evening just saying well what a relief to do the job at last so in a way it's not the job that's undone or unfinished because on the scale that we felt appropriate we did finish it but the but is the potential to do something extraordinary was immense and it was really thwarted by not getting the right team in place in the start and that's a lesson I've taken with me in every other project <laughs> since it's the same as Skipper in a boat if you don't have the right crew you know you may as well go home it's not gonna work it's don't even start no 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 that's a great that is an epic that is an epic story but i'm so glad that it didn't end in like total failure and destruction it no, it came no, to a really nice no, conclusion no no, no. no, no. There, there's one person i i'm resolved not to work with ever again but i'm not the only one <laughs> <laughs> and before we go we should just say you've got you've got two recent books out that there were also a few years in the making weren't they yeah, well, my novel, I realise, really, it's a bit worrying because I, I'm, I'm signed up to be delivering this masterclass on the novel shortly. <laughs> I've only written one, and it took me 30 years to write it, so it's probably not the best way to sort of say, this is how you write a novel. Yeah, <laughs> clear your diary for 30 years. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's how you start. But no, the, the, the book is, I had to lay it aside, think, lay it aside, think, until I had... Um, it was very frustrating to be doing bits and starts when I didn't have a clear run of time at it. And thanks to uh, Creative Scotland Bursary, I, I was trusted to have two years to focus on prose writing. And the book really took shape then, took another few years to complete. But um, A Book of Death and Fish, published by Sarabund, and uh, the time scale might explain why it ended up at 190,000 words. Within, a, within, a, within weeks of that, I published another book I've been working on really forever, which is Western Isles Folk Tales, retelling traditional stories. And the two projects couldn't be more different because in the novel, basically, with a very understanding publisher, I had complete freedom. Um, is that the book you want, she said. You know, that was the only editorial uh, suggestion. Oh, and losing one word of the title, which was A Merry Book of Death and Fish. Too long. Um, it's a good editor. Yeah, 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 yeah. But we had to lose that one. I could live with that because I pretty much no editorial pressure in any other way. Uh, but 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 retelling traditional stories is completely different because in maritime terms, I would say you are restricted in your ability to manoeuvre. What you have is something that's been handed down. It, it mustn't. You mustn't try and do it word for word the way you heard it because that's not storytelling. But it must be true to the spirit of it. And I found it. I found it a great game, finding a written form for spoken stories. Not an easy game, but a great game. And of course, we should also remind people that you are a poet, uh, and that's how I first came across first you. Trade. Yeah, and uh, you're going to focus on that now. I hope, yeah. For the, for the next while, I've come back from Stanza pretty fired up. And right now, before embarking on the final stages of a non-fiction project, I really want to gather a new collection of poems. Ian Stephen, everybody, what a great pleasure to talk to him. Thanks so much to Ian for, for sitting down and taking the time to talk to us about one of his unfinished projects. I'm really loving this sequence of interviews, and I hope you're enjoying it too. They're really, really fun. 
On the podcast now, we're going to dive into our archives. Um, I'm going to set up the interview in the past uh, for you now, but here we are introducing uh, an old episode of The Culture Laser, talking about Mandy Haggath and talking about the wild and exciting world of paper. I got rid of my printer uh, a few weeks ago because I had stopped using it. A lot of us, we have iPads, we have Kindles. Yeah, sure, books and stuff are all around us. A lot of us are still very loyal to books. But a lot of our emails and our communication, it's all happening electronically. And so we kind of have started to think, maybe this paper issue isn't, isn't so big. And that's why I was really excited to sit down with Mandy Haggath, who a few years ago went on the paper trail and, and, and tried to find out what makes paper from trees to trash uh the environmental impact of the paper industry and and she reminded me in this conversation she'll remind you too there's still a lot of paper out there being wasted trees being cut down to make paper which is obviously a very important resource for a lot of us who are involved in literature and these kind of things but a lot of paper is just plain wasted it's going into the trash remember you do get junk mail even though you put a sign that says no junk mail on your door. Mandy and I talk about this. It's a fascinating conversation. She gives us some answers, a little bit of hope, and a lot of ideas about uh, why things are so messed up. Hello, everybody. It's the Multicolored Cultural Laser. We travel the world for the boys and the girls. Casting parts of wonder and my day job, I work as the coordinator of a coalition of environmental organisations and social human rights organisations, all of whom are, share a vision for society using paper in a more sustainable fashion. And so we lobby the paper industry to try to manage forests more sustainably, to stop polluting water, to cut their carbon emissions and so forth. And we lobby big paper users to try to cut the amount of paper that's being wasted in our society. And the book Paper Trails came out as a result of a huge journey that I did in 2006, where I basically spent four or five months travelling overland from home in Scotland down across Europe, right the way across Russia, through China, Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia and Indonesia, and then kind of ran out of land and then went across the Pacific and then went to North America, um, USA and Canada, all the way looking at, at where the paper that we use comes from and what's going on with it. Um, so Paper Trails was the kind of write-up of that, of that wow. journey. Uh, were you surprised by what you discovered? It was fascinating. What did I discover? I got really angry in Indonesia um, where I saw the paper industry trashing forests that had indigenous people living there. It was people's homes. They, they needed it for their food and for water and for medicines and f for the materials to build their homes with. And the first thing they knew that the paper industry had been granted permission to use that forest was the bulldozers arriving and taking, taking down their homes, basically. So, uh, and that really en enraged me. I didn't know I was capable of being quite so furious. And to realize that this, this paper that I use as a writer every single day I write, to realize that that practice of writing could be threatening people's livelihoods and homes in, an, in another part of the world, 
um, for me makes it absolutely imperative to find ways that paper can be can be green and kind basically uh, we had amazing discoveries in for example china where um, I found out all about the history of paper and and the amazingly beautiful artworks that are created with paper and traditions of using paper for um, really deep spiritual purposes, um, things like ghost money where people give money to their ancestors and, and so forth, and the flying of kites to make contact through paper, fluttering with spirits and beautiful things. And I went to places where people make the most astonishingly lovely textured papers by hand. So, yeah, I saw everything from the, from the horrors of the worst end of the paper industry to the absolute delights of the, of the, of the best end of the industry and, and everything in between. Yeah, and that's got to be really a weird feeling and just being a writer as well and just that feeling of like, this is the stuff I use, I need this, I love it, and mm. people sending the kites up, a beautiful image. This is, seems like one of these issues mm. that it's like, man, yeah, you can have massive frustrations with the, just the user who prints mm. out way too much stuff. You have massive frustration with the industry that will just take advantage of the resource that's there. Or you have the governments that allow these kind of things to happen. Mm. Like, where did you find yourself kind of, the real problem is this. You know, do, mm -hmm. do, is there a nut that you're like, this? if we could just fix that one thing, the rest of it would sort itself out? To some extent, yes. What I brought home was that those of us who live in rich countries and take paper completely for granted, we need to reduce the amount that we're using. 10% of the world's population uses 80% of, of the world's paper. So it's basically you know, the rich in, in North America and Europe are, are using the absolute lion's share of this resource. And if we cut our use by half, then that would free up a huge amount of, of that natural resource for, for other countries that currently are what I would call below the paper poverty line. So if you think of African schools that don't have enough paper to have books for their, for their children, you know, that's below the paper poverty line. I think because paper has got a really, a really important value in our society and there's lots of very high utility forms of paper like books and passports and money and, and toilet roll and things like that. The key point for me is that there's, in our society, huge amounts of low-utility paper, and that includes things like magazines that don't get read and catalogues that get sent through the post and put straight in the bin, junk mail from banks and so forth advertising to us that, again, it's just, it's, it's not, it has no utility whatsoever. It ends straight in the bin. What we need to do is identify all those big volumes of really low utility paper and cut them out altogether or certainly by, by at least half. And what's interesting for me is that most of that really rubbishy, wasteful use of paper is out of our hands it's it's not most people don't have any say in that at all you know um, and there's in fact a very small number of key individuals in large corporations they're the people who sign the purchase orders to buy vast volumes of paper and so actually my focus is on, is on trying to persuade the very small number of large paper buyers to set about using paper more efficiently. If we can get, you know, the Argos catalogue, for example, which, you know, certainly a, a couple of years ago was using 1% of all of UK paper use. So that's just one catalogue. And there's one guy whose job it is to buy in that paper. And if we could cut that by half, you can make a big inroad into the amount of paper that we use. And so, so that's my target, is 
I mean, that's a, but that's amazing that that's one guy, one percent. Yeah. That's a. Is it like me being like, well, you know, I guess I got a, I, I got a toilet paper. What am I going to do? Is he just like, well, it's my job? Yeah, there's a constructive conversation with Argos, and they are bringing down their paper use, and they're they're designing the catalog to be more efficient on paper and lighter weight, and it saves them money as well. So there's actually a really good conversation that you can that we can have with, you know, people who produce packaging is another real area where you know this is stuff which is just sits there on a shelf, its sole purpose is to catch somebody's eye for long enough for them to put that package in their supermarket trolley and then they're going to throw it away. And persuading them that actually lightweight packaging would do the job, sometimes even better than heavyweight packaging, but it's, it's, you know, it saves them money and it saves um, the, the tree resources. And, and so, yeah, we, we have good conversations with a, with a lot of these, these people. Um, and, and, and then also we have people who refuse to talk to us. So some of the catalog companies just won't talk to me. Is, is there anything like I can do? Like you said, and this is part of the frustrating thing, I think, with, with activism in general. It's, it's out of our hands. I did not ask <laughs> for computer catalogs to be sent to me and all of these things that kind of come my way. How do we deal with it? You know, how do, who, who do we take that to? Is that, is that not, not, not the government that should be saying, look, I put no junk mail on my door, but nobody listens? Uh, yeah, that's, there is a Stop Junk Mail campaign. You can do things to ask the Royal Mail not to deliver to you, and you can ask to be taken off databases, and it's, it's a long and troublesome process in the UK, and it would be, it would be nice if, there's, if there were changes in, for example, a simple change would be for the law to change on that little box that is in six point print at the bottom of forms that you fill in um, saying I don't want you to send me any more information or put me in your database and spam me for the rest of my life and if, if instead of that it was required that only if you tick it do you get put into the database and spam for the rest of your life then that would actually be, be very helpful. So there are little subtle changes like that, that that the government could do. But the biggest thing the government can do is actually sit down with the big paper using companies and talk out with them what they're going to do and come up with strategies for how they're going to reduce. And that there has been a process, for example, with supermarkets that has begun to um, look at how they can reduce packaging waste. And I would like to see it being much more ambitious than it is at the moment. But I think that's one of the things government can do. But interestingly, actually, one of the biggest things that government can do is cut its own paper waste. Because, you know, some of the bureaucratic governmental departments consume vast quantities of paper themselves. And the NHS is a very interesting example where the government has just recently made a commitment to take the NHS on a journey to be becoming paper-free. And they reckon that they're, by doing that, going to save 4.2, I think it is, billion pounds. I think there are real questions that we as, as citizens of the country can ask government. Of how much money are you wasting on pointless bureaucracy and use of paper in your own, in your own departments? You know? And so start by cleaning up your own act, and then um, that would help a lot. That would be amazing. And, and just to, to re- remind people, because I think sometimes it gets abstract, this is important because... The paper industry overall, our, our production and use of paper overall, produces more carbon emissions than the aviation industry. We're all very conscious that flying is somehow bad for our carbon footprint, but how many of us are conscious that our use of paper is also contributing to our f- carbon footprint? It's important because there's only a finite amount of forest on the planet, and 
we need to use that forest resource much more carefully and, and much more fairly and turning it into disposable products that we throw away without even thinking about is, is just completely wasteful. It's important because all of those forests are actually people's homes and, and there are social impacts whenever the forestry industry moves into a new area or when plantations are set up on, on agricultural land that has you know, impacts on poor people on, on the planet. So there are kind of ethical impacts of it as well. It tends to pollute the water supplies as well, doesn't it? There are water quality problems in some parts of the world and they're, and they're very solvable, actually. So the paper industry in Europe is, is pretty clean. Um, but in other parts of the world where environmental regulation isn't so tight, then, then, yeah, water pollution can be a real problem. And water use in places where water supplies are short, paper is a very water-intensive um, process. Are there places that are getting it right Yes, interestingly, the Scottish Parliament is a great example, actually. They have cut their paper use by 40% in the last year and a bit by doing very simple things like asking all the people that they were otherwise mailing large volumes of paper to to say, do you actually want all of this stuff? And discovering that actually people kind of go, no, actually. Uh, so, yeah, the Scottish Parliament are doing really, really well. Yeah, yeah Scotland. And because and, I, I know in, you pass these uh, maintained forests or whatever, which are incredibly dull mm. to look at. Those are reasonably well run, reasonably good for us? or In Scotland, you're probably referring to the Sitka spruce plantations, mm. which are problematic because they are a species native to North America, not to here. In Scandinavian countries, for example, a lot of paper is made from the native species. And certainly that would be my preference, is let's make paper out of species that belong to, to the ecology. And things are going in the right direction in Scotland that yeah, our, our forests and plantations are being managed better than they, than they were before. That's a, that is a key issue for me, is, is whether the trees that we're growing to make paper are a natural part of our ecosystems. And therefore, if they are, they support all of the other life of those ecosystems. And if they're not, then, then the biological diversity that results is much, much less. And why is that? That's just an economic thing. These trees grow faster, bigger, better, easier. So yeah, the, the speed of, of growth and also because Sitka spruce has particularly long fibres and, and there is a pulp mill in the south of Scotland which is exclusively, has a large appetite as it were for that one species. Is our kind of movement towards using electronic media, uh, e-readers and these kind of things in any way helping or is it so far out of our, our, our domain that it's not, it's not, it's, it's not enough, it's not, it's not progressing. Yeah, the, the most visible impact has been on newspapers. People shifting to, to reading newspapers online has, has definitely reduced the amount of newspapers being sold. Books are a, are a smaller volume. It's, yeah, it's not a black and white issue at the moment. I think if you read a large number of books on digital formats, there are arguments that they say that, yeah, overall the environmental benefit of saving all of that paper outweighs the environmental costs of your Kindle or whatever it is. And I think, but there are real questions I think about, about the electronics and what the environmental impacts of those electronics are. And at the moment we can't recycle a Kindle, for example, and they use kind of rare metals and so forth. And there is a risk that all we do is displace environmental impact from one kind to another kind. It's a very active debate about whether paper versus digital, where, where, where the line is that actually you can say, yes, there's measurable benefit by going digital. It's a hot topic and very fiercely debated amongst the, between the electronics and the print industry at the moment. So I watch that debate with, with a lot of interest. Um, and, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, the, the jury's still out. You know what you need? We need to get you to, to follow the iPads. 
I need to get you to follow the Kindles. Eight months. <laughs> eight more months. Get on the road. It has crossed my mind that that's actually, it is where I need to go next. Do you ever get overwhelmed by all this stuff? Yeah, I can only take a certain amount of doom and gloom. Yeah. And, and, and so, yeah, you have to manage life so that I work as a warrior, um, you know, a few days a week. And then I retreat to the woods and I hang out and hug trees and play with a boat on the loch and, and, and just enjoy the wonders of nature and, and recover. And then once I've got energy back, then I go back to the fight. The day after tomorrow, I'm off to London to meet with a company called Asia Pulp and Paper. And they were the worst paper company on the planet. And we have been campaigning about their destruction of Indonesian forests for, for years now. And they have finally made a promise that they're going to stop trashing the forest and start giving communities back their land and, and so forth. And, um, oh yeah, I'm going to go meet them in London and, and kind of say thank you for the promise and you know we're going to hold you to it you know take a, um, take a picture or something <laughs> Andy you know get that in right yeah exactly um, I think it, it's important to do the fighting as well as hiding out in the in the woods so as long as I can I'll, I'll keep doing that This episode of Culture Laser has been supported with the generous assistance of Creative Scotland. <laughs>